welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These lads are mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders past and present and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. Damien Francis now. It's Paul McVeigh now, it's blocked away. Now McVeigh for Norwich City and McVeigh has scored. Squeezed in by Paul McVeigh. And Norwich have a goal back in the game. And their travelling fans who've come in their thousands to Old Trafford have a goal to celebrate. Paul McVeigh. So in this week's episode, we've got Paul McVeigh. He's an ex-Premier League footballer, former international footballer, sports psychologist and author. Paul's resume is pretty unique. He's went from elite performance at the Premier League level all the way to teaching high performers how to have an elite mindset. He's the author of Stupid Footballer is Dead and also has a podcast, Psychology of Success. It's an immensely valuable podcast and also plenty of laughs. Let's go. What's happening? All right. Look at that wee shagger. What is that? I can't see the things. Oh, a wee glass of milk for you, son. <laughs> you chalk <chose> your milk? <laughs> Bailey's. Bailey's on ice. I've got a wee, uh, a wee Kurayoshi, a Japanese number. What the fuck is that? Who the fuck is that guy? Fucking long way from Glasgow, you've been, what? Drinking fucking Japanese perch. <laughs> Go try Japanese buck fast, mate. Different gear. <laughs> hey, Paul. Hi. How's it going, UK? Hi, good mate. How are you? There he is. How are Very you? Well. Very well. Yep, yep. What's happening? What's a crack? <laughs> crack is good. Crack is yeah. 90, as we used to say in Dublin. <laughs> crack is 90, but unfortunately, that's 30 years ago. So, how old do you feel? <laughs> Yeah, oh, well, nearly 40, so we're not getting oh, any younger. Nearly 40. That's, that's what I used to say whenever I was seven. <laughs> like, I'm nearly seven. Nearly seven. <laughs> Six and a half. But whenever you start going over the 40s, then you start just saying, yeah, it's old. Just old. <laughs> I've got a little Bailey's number here. Don't believe oh. Wow. If I joined you, that would probably be quite wrong, considering it's five to nine in the morning. Coffee, lovely. Jesus, that's like that's like mother's milk. That is my god. <laughs> the beer, I'm a Bailey's man. The only person I remember drinking Bailey's was Lorenzo Amoruso. What a man! The Rangers player used to always drink Bailey's. It used to always be a, a wee sketch on the sketch show, only an excuse. It's an unbelievable <laughs> drink, but it's very dangerous because it's quite strong and it just goes down like water and. Uh, you can just you could slap a, bo- a bottle like away in 30 minutes and it's not expensive either i think it's like 25 bucks or something like that so it's not even an expensive drink yeah drink that uh so the first thing we always ask our guest uh, paul is what does mental health mean to the guest so that is a first question to you 
it's probably changed a lot over the years in terms of I had no idea at all growing up in Ireland as a you know four left at 16 I had no idea really what mental health was and probably along the way through I don't know maybe the last even 15 years I've only started to fully really understand kind of the the implications and, and the consequences of, of not keeping on top of your mental health but essentially I would say it's the capacity to deal with challenges that life throws at you and the healthier you are in your mind the more strategies and tools you'd have to be able to deal with the different things that we're all going to face so that's probably hopefully a, a succinct way of, of understanding mental health yeah it's good good to get different perspectives on it I think, I think we've had a different answer every single time which I think mm. we've got a fair challenge on our hands to, to sort of describe what mental health actually is to each person and maybe it is just an individual an individual thing mm. yeah we even with the name of the show these lads are mental we discussed before about that term mental when you were growing up how did you, you know, frame the word if someone said, oh, that's mental? Would, like, what did that mean to you growing up in Ireland? Well, it's, it's ambiguous. Amb- ambiguous, is that the word? I can't, can't even think yes. of it. It's just, it has two, two meanings. Yeah. <laughs> ambiguous. Because, ambiguous. Yeah. Ambiguous, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you very much for helping me out. I think it's, yeah, it depends on the context because you could easily see some fellow walking down the street and one of your mates would go, oh, that fella's mental. And that could either mean loads of things. That could either mean he always starts fights just because he's got a short fuse. It could be, you know, he's just not in the same sort of wavelength as the rest of us, and he just does things completely out of out of what you would even consider. Or probably what we're cons- what we talk about now is he probably has some serious mental health issues. So there was probably loads of different ways you would do it. But then, of course, the other side was if you were maybe in school or maybe the start of the football and career that I had, you would start talking about how the mental side of the game was really important. And I even remember just to try and simplify it and sum it up whenever I was a kid and we had our uh, the scout that brought me over from Belfast over to Spurs and his name's Rob Walker. So I'm still friends with him today, you know, 30 years later. And, and he said to me, Paul, talent obviously is, is what gets you in the door at Tottenham Hotspur. You know, a lot of players are talented. And the way that he described it, he goes, well, it's the three days that will determine whether you're going to be a, a professional footballer. And that was like, I think dedication probably was determination and discipline. So that's sort of what he was talking about. And that was probably my first whose understanding of the mental side of football and performance and not just from a mental health, you know, a personal perspective. Hmm. Yeah, because I remember like, Gary, you're probably the same, like growing up even in Dublin, I knew loads of lads that had gone over to England to try and make us a footballer. And most of the time they came back because of what you just said there. Like they didn't have one of those Ds. Like I heard there was a guy I know who went over to Everton and he was, he was 16 and he was apparently, he was mates with Richard Dunn and he was supposed to be out of this world, but he just had this mad attitude. And I think that was back when Richard Dunn was in his kind of more crazier times. I think he was like storming into Howard Kendall, the manager, and saying like, why am I starting on the first team as a 16-year-old? Like, um, Which back then was this before the Wayne Rooney 16-year-old kind of debuts. And then those players would just come back to Ireland then. And then, you know, I ended up, he played on my team. I played for Mount Mary and John Lester was his name. And he was an unbelievable player. Just the, like the fact that I was even sharing a pitch with him, I was like, this guy's like so much 
better than me, but it's a bit of a shame, really, that I'd love to know the stats on how many players had the talent but didn't back it up versus the ones that maybe didn't have the same talent but had that dedication. I'd definitely be in the second category. You know, it, it was frightening because I actually came across with three lads from Dublin, um, Ross Darcy, Simon Webb and Alan Mannix, who they all had already come across with guaranteed professional contracts. And so even that by itself, or as me and uh, another Welsh guy who actually was coaching in Australia called Darren Davis, he was at Melbourne and Brisbane and and he just actually just came back to Swansea. But so the five of us turned up at Tottenham Hotspur in 1994. The three lads from Dublin all had their professional contracts and me and Darren from Wales, we didn't. We just had a two-year sort of youth team contract. So even that in itself gives a very different psychology because those guys knew no matter what happened, they guaranteed they were going to be a professional where we were, this could, this could go either way. And, and actually, as soon as you turned up, you suddenly saw these lads and the quality. So we had players like Stephen Clements in our youth team and Luke Young and who else would you know from that from those days? We actually had a guy called Rory Allen. So I'll give you a quick story talking about whether people make it or not and whether they don't or why they don't. All the way through our youth team days, and consider like my first day at Spurs was with Jurgen Klinsmann. So he just signed after the 94 World Cup. So, oh, yeah. you know, coming off the boat from Belfast, well, not off the boat, the flag cross, but, you know, literally arriving <laughs> from Ireland, getting over, over to England on my first day because the first team weren't back and Klinsmann had just signed and we had to go in and uh, do a session with him, you know, just because of the press were there, they wanted the photographs. So we're training. And I can imagine the rest of the players who were training with us and our youth team were buzzing going, training with the World Cup winner, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann's star of 94 World Cup. But in my head, I was looking at this guy, and of course, I'm coming across with all this baggage from growing up in the Troubles and Belfast and, you know, this inferiority complex and thinking your accent was weird and all the rest of it. Nobody could understand you every time you went to England. And I'm coming across this inferiority complex and suddenly I'm standing next to Jurgen Klinsmann <laughs> and I'm not thinking, this is the best thing ever. I'm thinking, holy fuck, if this is what it takes to be a first team player or a Premier League footballer or an international player, I have no chance. So instead of thinking this is brilliant, I had this created this belief through no fault of my own, just you know, years and years of growing up in a troubled society. And suddenly I carried that with me through my two years in youth team, which as you can imagine, was not conducive for me going on to be the best player and the highest performer in the team. But going back to Rory, Rory was the best player. So he was Brilliant center forward. I'm only five foot six. He was about six foot, I think, even at the time, he's gone bigger again. But he was just like strong, scored goals for fun. So he was the one who went from youth team into the reserves while he was still in the youth team. And then, of course, we all kind of caught up, got our professional contracts, got into the reserves. And then he was the first player to get from the reserves into the first team. So, as you can imagine, seeing your mate, you've come through, you know, the youth team, you've been on nights out with, you've been around his house and all, you just like, He's a peer and suddenly he makes his debut against Man United at White Hart Lane, live on Sky Sports. And I'm absolutely buzzing for him because I'm thinking he's playing against Beckham, you know, like the Beckham gig, Scholes, Kane, that kind of yeah, 90s yeah. thing. This is early 1997. And on his debut, he scores. And I'm not joking. I'm like all of us were all sitting near each other, new team reserves. And we are buzzing because our mates just scored, but A scored on his debut and he scored against Man United. But the funny thing about it was that as soon as he scored, suddenly there was like a little kind of switch that was flicked in my head. 
And suddenly I went, if my mate can do it, then so can I. And within a few months, I managed to go from the reserves, not thinking I had any chance of ever being a professional player or a first-team footballer, to suddenly making my debut in the Premier League away at Villa Park, up front with Teddy Sheridan playing against you know, the likes of Gareth Southgate and big Ugo Ekiog, who's unfortunately passed away, but you know against Dwight York and Mark Buzzings, all those players who were in that team. And it's just amazing. So going back to it, that for me was such a fine line of whether I would have made a career in football or whether I didn't. And I think because my mate Rory scored against my United, suddenly gave me the opportunity to go on and have a professional career. It's almost like that uh, Roger Bannister forming at Milan. It's just absolutely. It's like, you know what, actually, this is, this is doable. Yeah, about? it's a threshold. It was the threshold. And it's a bit like if you can try and imagine, I don't know if you do the videos so people or this is just the audio, but if you can imagine, we all had a kind of level and it's almost like a glass ceiling, but the glass ceiling only existed in my head. It wasn't like people were saying to me, Paul, you're shit, you're never going to be a footballer because it was clearly at Spurs. It was clearly a young player that had potential, but I was the one holding myself back until suddenly Rory got in the team. I then went, you know what? I believe now I can get in the team. And I said within three months, I made my debut. And the, I suppose the, probably the, the most amazing part of this story is it because, you know, we had the likes of Teddy Sheridan and Chris Armstrong and all these other top players and then Les Ferdinand signed and, you know, we just... I was never going to get in the team, so neither was Rory. So Rory ended up getting sold down to Portsmouth, where Harry Redknapp was the manager at the time. I think he sold him for about a million pounds. So this is yeah. 97, 98 million uh, pounds. A lot of money. Yeah. And also, yeah. I'll tell you, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this, he was on £8,000 a week. So, so we were on like peanuts at Spurs. He suddenly went because he was signed for a million. You know, good young player, £8,000 a week, four hundred grand a year. In late 90s, that was a lot of money back then, you know, Sterling. and <laughs> in Sterling, yeah. And he went and he started playing for Portsmouth. But of course, one day he didn't turn up for training. And everyone's like, Where's Rory Allen? Where's Star Striker? Where's, where's Rory? Harry Redknapp's on the phone to his mum, but where's Rory? Have you seen him? He's like, No, I haven't seen him. The next day, the press got hold of it, still hadn't turned up for training. And they're like, Hold on, Harry, what's, what's happened? What's going on? This doesn't happen. Players don't just take days off when they want. The third day, there was a photograph of Rory Allen in the Sun newspaper in Australia with the Barmy Army watching England, Australia in the cricket, never to come back to football, never kicked the ball in anger, ripped up his contract and walked away from football. That's him done? That was him? That was the end of his professional career. And what was the underlying reason for... I hadn't heard from him for 10, 12 years until the, the power of social media. I suddenly got in touch with him about 2012. But essentially it was, if I look back at our time together, every day in training, he'd go, oh, I fucking hate football. Oh, I hate football. Right? Yeah. And we're all going. We didn't what? realize at the time. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, no, honestly, he goes, I'd much rather be a cricketer. Much rather, I love cricket. I hate, hate football. And we're like, why are you here? And he goes, pay as well. And that for us was just an indication that because he didn't have the passion and the love and the enthusiasm for wanting to do what loads of people say they want to do, but the difference is, and this is more when it comes into the kind of the work I do in the corporate world, I think loads of people say they want things, but very few people, I'm going to say very few, that's when you end up in that tiny 0.001% of the population of the world who make it to do something that most people can't whether it's playing in the Premier League, whether it's starting a multi-million pound business, whether it's becoming an astronaut, 
It's that loads of people say they want things, but in my experience, most people aren't prepared to put in what it takes to get those things. To get there. Yeah, for sure. There's actually, there's one, I do have one really funny story. Similar to that, there's a, there was an Irish player who I played with him at one point. His name is Gary Smith. He was a striker and he was on, on the books of Sunderland when Peter Reid was the gaffer. And he was just the laziest fucker ever. Like he just, even at, when I played for Wayside, he like training, he was terrible. And apparently he was a Sunderland. He was supposed to be the next big thing, striker. It was just like scoring goals, like you're saying, for days. And Peter Reid just did not like him because Peter Reid was this engine, you know, in the middle. Grafter. Like, work, yeah, grafter, workhorse. And apparently just gave Gary Smith so much abuse. Oh, you're lazy. And he used to make him stay behind after all the other players. And then I think one day Peter Reid went, right, I'm going to run with you. And Peter Reid was whatever in his 40s or 50s at that stage. And he made him do laughs. He was doing laughs and laughs. And he was like just shouting abuse. And I'm, you know, twice your age. And, I'm, and then apparently Gary Smith just... When he went around for the final lap, just ran out the gate and just never came back. Got a flight the next day. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was the same story we got. The guys are not do that. The guys are not. The ball went over the fence. And Gaza jumped, <laughs> uh, Gaza jumped over the fence to get the ball, but this never turned up. So they're all waiting on him. And then the next day at training, Gaza didn't turn up. And then halfway through the session, Gaza turned up, but he jumped back over the same fence with a ball under his arm. <laughs> Do you know what? Don't don't start me on Gaza. I, uh, he was my hero, honestly. See, whenever I was like 10, 11, 1990 World Cup, absolute hero. And just honestly, I have to tell you this really quickly is that when I turned up at Spurs on my first day, sort of almost on trial, so to speak. So I went over in the summer, I think of 91, maybe. And I turned up at the training ground and there was a youth development officer, a guy called John Munker. And his son ended up playing for West Ham and, and Swindon etc and, and he just said listen Paul I know you've come here for training your first day on trial and stuff but you're not going training today and I was like really what do you mean he goes we need a young player to take part in an advert <laughs> I was like what he goes yeah he says it's the sun the sun newspaper want want to do an advert and um Page three. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was only 11 <laughs> <laughs> would have run the opposite direction from a girl <laughs> anyway and and so he goes no it's an advert with paul gascoigne and i went oh, i went really he goes yeah yeah so he says gaz is going to be here in an hour just you need to get set up and, and i said all right that's brilliant and he goes um the only thing is and he knew obviously he come from west belfast you know irish catholic and he was like the only thing is um you have to wear an england shirt and i went oh. <laughs> <laughs> I will get my knees blown off. If I go on an advert on national television, I go back to Belfast warnings. I said, no, it's not worth it. I want to keep my knees. I'd rather, I'd rather <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, seriously. He's like, you have to do it. And I went, no, honestly, John, I'm not doing it. Seriously, there's no way in the world. I would rather live than, than do that. So, with an England top, and he goes, we'll pay you 200 pounds. I was like, where do I sign? Give me, give me. Give me. <laughs> Did you end up doing it? I ended up doing it. And the funny thing was, I ended up doing one for Scotland as well. I had a Scotland oh, shirt on. So amazing had these two things. Matt Gazzo had amazing day, and then the advert came out a couple of weeks later, and and <laughs> unbelievably, this is how the whole you know, digital world I had it on video. So you two probably wouldn't remember what a video is, where you got ah, yeah, VHS. <laughs> no, I actually had it on Betamax. No, my joke. Um, it was on VHS. <laughs> so I ended up only had that video because I think my dad recorded the movie, and an advert happened to be in the middle of the movie, <laughs> and I had it on on video. And only just about 
three or four months ago, I managed to get it digitized and I put it out on the socials. So the adverts me, essentially me passing the ball to Gazettes, recreating one of goals Gaza scored at Wembley, recreating a goal, then then passing it back, and then we do a little high five. Then next scenes in the changing room, me and him sort of chatting in the changing room. So. Uh, one of the questions tying in with sort of what you're talking about just now is just that you mentioned your mentality, obviously from use that light bulb moment. And I, mm-hmm. I did one of your interviews you had and you said your edge was your mentality. Was that light switch moment the only moment was it from then on that mentality developed or did you always really deep down, even back in Ireland, have that sort of mentality that gave you the edge no matter what level you played at? No, definitely not. I was probably whenever before hormones kicked in or testosterone kicked in, I was probably the best player around the area because, you know, I was small, but I was quick and I was agile and all the rest of it. But of course, as soon as I was playing against guys with beards at 14 and, you know, big hairy chest and stuff, and I didn't have a pube and it was like, I'm like kind of <laughs> competing with these fellas. But of course, as they were getting bigger and bigger, their strength and athleticism was just dominating games and my skill was immaterial, didn't matter. And that probably happened all the way through until about sort of 18, 19, maybe until, well, let me just tell you about one thing that did happen was whenever I was 17, a friend of mine, actually my mates, from Belfast, his brother-in-law was living in London with his with his sister, and they had um, they essentially gave me this kind of life away from home. Of you know, you always go around for Sunday dinner or whatever at your mum's house, and you're suddenly you're there with an Irish family in London that I didn't have. So being there, and he got on really well. And he ended up giving me a book. Have you ever heard of a guy called Tony Robbins? Yeah, yeah. Robbins. yeah so big personal development guru in America. But this is 1995 when he gave me the book, and this yeah. book called Awake in the Giant Within. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. nothing. If there's a book that I can read called Awake in the Giant Within. <laughs> <there. laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah. That's like a good up. Divine, <laughs> divine intervention I need to. So anyway, so I read the book and it completely just blew my mind. It just, I suppose, took the blinkers off of the way that I was doing things. And it was essentially, if you were to try and sum up the entire book in probably one line, it would be stop looking outside of yourself because everything you'll ever need in life you've already got within. And as you can imagine, as a 17-year-old kid, that was just quite mind-blowing for me. Even now, when you tell that to people, it's probably hard for them to take, even if they're more mature and a bit more awareness. But as a 17-year-old kid, I was like, wow. So it started to induce me to things like goal-setting, to taking more control, more ownership, more responsibility for every single choice you make, every single action, how important your mindset is in terms of the way your life looks today and and really essentially saying whatever way your life looks today is 100% down to your responsibility. And if there's something you want to change in your life, then the only way that the whole field of psychology allows us to believe that if you want to change something in your life, the only way you can do it is by changing your thinking or your habitual thought patterns. So whenever I started reading these things at 17, I'm like, oh my God, what can I start to do? So I would have conversations with my dad on the phone every weekend when you phone home and he'd be saying things like, oh, Paul, have you tried visualization? And I was like, don't even know what it was. And he was a big golf fan. So Jack Nicholas, obviously the best golfer in the world, said he used to visualize before every golf shot. I'm like, okay, give it a go. And then be having another conversation or stick stick mommy on the phone. So speaking to my man, suddenly she'd be going, Oh, Paul, if, if I used to do yoga whenever I was younger, why don't you try some yoga? And I'm like, mm, in a church hall with a bunch of middle-aged women. 
not really my kind of cup of tea. But she was like, well, but it's really, really good for your flexibility. Would that help your football? And I'm like, yeah, I suppose it would. And he goes, and it's really, really good for um, reducing injuries. Would that help your football? I'm like, yeah, yeah. She goes, and it's really good for improving core strength. And I'm like, well, what the fuck's core strength? I've never heard of that back in the 90s. <laughs> and essentially, I started doing yoga as a 17-year-old kid. And I'm still doing it now. And obviously, I probably look 14 now, but I'm actually 43, nearly 44. <laughs> nearly 40. and, and I've been doing it for 25 years. And the funny thing is, it's since I've come out of professional football and actually the whole way through professional football, I've only ever had one muscle injury. Oh, there you go. Thanks to your mum. it's probably not a coincidence that I was doing yoga from a 17-year-old all the way through to now. So it's probably more the open-mindedness that I must have had for whatever reason, whether that's down to parents, people around me, that I was open to these things and then you start going off and learn the strategies and techniques to allow you to apply them to football. That is, that's interesting, mate. So basically open-mindedness, took a chance, see what worked for you, then hard to do at 17 though, isn't it? You've got a lot of different things happening. There was a lot of things going on, but I suppose that's probably why I had a different approach because I was going, yes, there's loads of things going on, but my overriding goal in life at that point the only thing I was focused on the only thing I wanted to do bar none was be a professional footballer and be an international footballer so if that was my only goal in life then everything else kind of like just pales in insignificance so things like girls I'm 17 18 I'm sure loads of people would rather go and have a night out and go and try and get a girl but I was like I want to play football so that was more important to me than doing that or whatever these other distractions were and there were distractions and don't get me wrong I'm no no saint but it was always kept coming back to what I want to do am I achieving what I want to do and at loads of the time I wasn't when I made my debut yes but then for the next three years at Spurs it was pretty much in the wilderness so I needed to change my lifestyle to be able to try and achieve my goals but essentially I didn't realize that how important my psychology and mindset was in all of that hmm. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. People spend most of their life, thousands of dollars retreats to get to that point that you just said that you kind of arrived at yourself when you were 17. You should be pretty proud about that, especially being in a foreign country, you know, without your parents being there. Did you have any solid mentors along the way or was it kind of like you had to fend for yourself? Or You definitely had to fend for yourself. And as you say, probably a lot of the reasons why people do go across the whatever other country to go and try and make a career for themselves. And that can be in football or sport. It can be in acting. You know, how many people go to London to try and be actors or musicians or, and it's, it is that self-discipline, which I suppose all comes back to the mental side, doesn't it? And having that, I suppose for me, a bit more of a kind of a perspective, I think in life. And, and, and definitely whenever I was younger, I had less of it. But as I was starting to go through the way that I sort of view what I do in my life is, as I said before, 16 to 32, when I was playing, the only thing I was focused on was, you know, football, being the best I could, being a professional. But of course, that takes up a lot of your time, a lot of your energy. It's, it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. Essentially, I didn't know what I was doing from one day to the next because of the way the, the sort of the profession is. But now, since I've come out of football, and again, very goal-orientated, very sort of driven with those kind of things, as you can start to imagine, and as I come out of football, I realized that this football thing has taken up so much of my life for so long that the only thing now I want going forward is balance. And for me, then balance was, okay, I don't want to be working like it was a 
full-time job like football was and, and so like a lifestyle I wanted to do a nine to five have my weekends have my evenings then I didn't want to be on holiday all the time and I didn't want to train all the time and I didn't want to so there's this balance that I wanted now for the last 11 years which you know I believe I've got because it's it's down to me and my decisions of having not just that physical fitness but as you talk about earlier is the mental health that that include things like taking some time to, to have gratitude in your life so very early on when I came out of professional football I started working with our sports psychologist called Gavin Drake who I didn't realize that the one day a week he was coming into work with us at Norwich City for 18 months the other four days he had a corporate training business he was traveling around the world and so I started working with him as soon as I stopped playing and he was delivering programs and essentially it's a mix between you know we've talked a lot about the high performance element of mindset and mental and the mental side of that and he was more around the kind of mental health, mental well-being, taking responsibility for your, your mindset. And that included things like gratitude. And even I created an achievement log, which is essentially writing down all the things in life that you did really well. And not even that you did well. It didn't have to be climbing Everest. It could be just things that you're proud of. It could be getting your you know 20-meter swimming certificate, whatever it happens to be. What the difference is, it's putting a perspective of you in life. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people take a single incident in their life and kind of catastrophize it and sort of make it much bigger than what it is. And, and you know, there's, there's so many benefits of being in the present as opposed to looking ahead in the future of where you want to go to because that's obviously hasn't happened. Although, as I've talked about being goal-driven, you're focused on what you want to create, but that can only happen with this present moment. And then, of course, a lot of people get stuck of in the past of what's happened and that, I suppose, narrative that we have in life and that story, but actually being grateful and, and having a healthy perspective of what you have and what you've done in life is really, really good for our self-belief and self-worth. Uh, one, one thing that I'd done I mean, about three years ago was similar. I got a lot of anxiety and fear about always being so goal-driven but then just been having anxiety about not achieving it. But then I started just doing similar to what you just suggested, but just say that what just write wrote wins in a bit of paper. And anytime something happened, not not like massive, but even fairly decent, I'd just write it down and forget about it. And anytime I was having those moments, I'd go back and look at the list. And by the end of every single year, that list ended up so long that I just had to ground me and go like, chill out, mate. You're doing well. You look how much you've done. Because that 12-month period just felt like, I'm like, was that only the last 12 months when you realised how much you've accomplished? Like, little small things. Like, even, like, this year, I got my citizenship in Australia. It's not like I really worked really, really hard at it, but it was a big milestone. Just little yeah. small things. You think, oh, brilliant. It's a big year. Good year. And then that is, it does make a big difference. That is a small, a brilliant tactic. It's a achievement list. So you're doing that achievement list for your whole life. For start, so I started 11 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since, doing it every week. And and, and the thing is that it, it all comes back to, why are you doing that? Well, you're definitely not doing it to go around and show people how good you are. Yep. You know, it's not to go around and go, here, guy, look at this, I've done some things in my life. I'm good, aren't I? <laughs> but it's not, it's because we have this constant roller coaster of life of things going well, things going bad, things going well, things going bad. And it's whenever you have those kind of dips or those down moments, it's what tools or what strategies do you have to bring yourself back out of it? Because it's not that you're not going to have them. We all have them. But how can you get yourself back out of that dip very quickly? And one of the ways that I've found is, is just being grateful for what you are in life. And, and this all comes back to, back to psychology, back to mindset, back even just the beliefs 
even to understanding what is a belief. I'm not going to do any kind of session here, but if I were to ask people, what is a belief? Most people have not really much clue about what a belief is. And I would just say, you know, from the, the company I work with and the company I work for is Mindspan. And we talk about how a belief is just something you accept as true or real. That is it. Now, we all have similar backgrounds, but do we have the same beliefs? Absolutely not. Very, very different. Of whether you're growing up in Dublin, Belfast, or in Scotland, we'll have different beliefs. So who has the right set of beliefs out of the three of us? Almost at me, mate. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, what you kind of touched on, you didn't mention it, but it sounded a bit like when you arrived at Spurs, there was that maybe imposter syndrome. You're like, can I do this? And then I, it made me think of, I don't know if it's an Irish thing or Great Britain thing as well, where we tend to look at the negative. Often my wife will say like, you're always thinking about the negative. And I don't mean to do it, but it feels like it's just fucking ingrained in my DNA. And the way we've obviously listened to how you speak through your career, what was the moment where that mindset started to shift? Was it the book you mentioned with Tony Robbins? Like, yeah. was there any likeable moments that, what am I doing here? I need to change things. There was a couple of different things. I think definitely the book was the biggest eye opener. That, that just, if you came to essentially a fork in the road, and I didn't realize it was at a fork in the road, but essentially my life was going down one direction. And because I read that book at 17, it went down a very, very different trajectory. And, and that is like anything, that's just awareness. And you know mm -hmm. the way they say about knowledge is power. And I'm yes. like, it's not, it's really not. Let me just say just last thing, because the whole thing that knowledge isn't power, because a lot of us know what we should eat and drink, but it's we action. do the opposite a lot yeah. of times applied knowledge is yep. power yep. because yep. in that book i could have read that book and go that's brilliant sat on the shelf and did nothing with it i read that mm -hmm. book and suddenly went oh my god i need to be setting goals i need to be more understanding mindful of my my thinking habits i need to understand how my language impacts everything and you just said it there is it just because i'm irish and that's what it well no it's not because not all irish people think like you because it's so individual it's like i spoke to someone yesterday and they're going, well, you know, we've got these, I'm, I'm working in Switzerland and I've got these people over here and they're really sort of, you know, jovial. And then I've got all these French people and they just complain about everything. And I'm going, you know, and they always just want to complain. I'm like, well, it's not French people because <laughs> French, the French football team is the world champions. <laughs> so they're a whole lot of high achievers and they don't complain. High achievers don't complain about shit. High achievers get whatever's happening and then go and find the solution that they want. So it's not a French thing. It's not an Irish thing. Mm. It's an individual person that either has the awareness and doesn't do anything with it or has the awareness and does something with it that then leads into a whole series of behaviors and how that impacts over you know days weeks months and years and Gary just mentioned about how a, an accumulative effect of writing down what you've done well in life on a daily basis after a year looks like this we'll put that into 10 years oh, yeah. and that's suddenly one simple tool that people could use to maybe maybe and it's no guarantee with this stuff maybe help them whenever they're going through a tough time what you were hitting on there to me as well was kind of saying that for a lot of people maybe who have mental health conditions sometimes it can feel like you know the whole world is against you or and this again and blah 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 but what you just described there and we've spoken about this before how you can micro moves can make macro changes so as you were saying it might be a book or it might be taking a class it might be doing a course and that's the good news for anyone out there that maybe might be feeling like, oh, this is overwhelming. I can't do it. It doesn't like it can just be one move, right? That could set yourself down a whole new path for the rest of your life. This this is essentially the field that I've been 
studying. I planned in my own life, writing books about, speaking about for the last 10, 11 years in the corporate world, traveling around the world doing it. I planned it to football. That's why I became a sports psychologist, doing it in the media, which is why I speak on TV. But it always comes back to everything we do in life. All comes back to our mindset, our psychology, our mentality, our attitudes, our thinking, whatever you want to call it. I don't really care what you call it. It's all happening in here. And even people who do have mental health conditions, they'll go and see whether it's a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And essentially, they will be working on the understanding of how psychology is applied to human functioning. And it always comes back to what's happening in here is dictates what we do in life and whether we then have the ability to deal with outcomes in a way that's helpful and constructive or we deal with outcomes in our lives that's actually very quite destructive or unhelpful for us. But if you went and saw a psychologist, they're going to talk to you about cognitive behavioral therapy. And the most simple form of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is essentially how your thoughts drive your feelings and how you feel on a daily basis is going to drive what you do, your behaviors, your actions. Of course, from a sporting context, sporting context, my actions or my behaviors was my performance on the field. And what you do every single day is going to dictate what your life looks like. So how I performed would dictate whether I played in the game, got the contract, didn't get the contract, had a longer career, had a shorter career, but it always came back down to what's going on in my head. And it's not just happening in my head, it's happening in everyone's head. Yeah, mate, talk to us, what I want to talk to you a bit more about is about what you do in the corporate world, because a lot of people we speak to are, who listen to the show are also entrepreneurs or they're part of big businesses, etc. So if you give us some insight of like, you've obviously transitioned from football over the last 11 years into the corporate world and education, etc. Can you tell us what you currently do, how you do it, who you work with? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have, in the last 10, 11 years, I kind of moved out of football and even that process of transition from 20 years in a professional sporting career to looking back now was a seamless transition into this world of, you know, elite performance and, and sharing this framework with, you know, CEOs, companies, and whether that's Microsoft or Cisco or PwC or, I know, Barclays Bank or Deutsche, whoever it is, you're just, you're going in to share the insights and experience and expertise from, I suppose, a, what could be described as the most competitive or even the most ruthless industry in the world. And I say that because, you know, if we all have football and backgrounds, there were so many players who wanted to become a professional. And of course, everyone in my street grew up in Belfast. It wasn't just my street. It was the next street. It was the next town, next city, all around the country. And it wasn't just in Ireland. People wanted to be professionals. It was England, Scotland, Wales. But then everybody doesn't just want to be professionals in their own country. Where do we want to go? England, because we want to play in the Premier League because it's the most prestigious and the richest league in the world. So to do that, you have to outperform and compete against millions and millions and millions of people who want to do it. So just understanding the level that that takes to be able to then, if you just did that by itself, that would be great if you could share that experience. And I think probably why I've kind of done what I've done or the career path I've had over the last decade is because I didn't just live off my playing days, I was working as a sports psychologist, but also then went and studied my master's in psychology so that I had this understanding of this dichotomy of elite performance, which is essentially not just playing at the Premier League, but studying it to an unbelievable level so that you can ensure that with essentially businesses who want to apply that elite performance to their business. 
And hopefully, whenever you start to understand that the mindset within a business is going to dictate the culture of a business, and if the culture is not giving that company the return and the profits they want, then something has to change. And that's essentially what I'll do. So I started off just working and delivering keynote speeches and even just to be able to deliver a keynote speech. I went off to America, you know, paid $20,000 to go on a keynote speaking course so that I could learn how to do this and deliver one keynote speech. Took so much time and effort. And whenever I first did my first one for Aviva, which is a big insurance company, I ended up doing that. And the guy came up to the end of it and he said, that was really good, Paul, really loved that. He was like, can you do anything else? And I went, can you kind of do the same thing again for a different audience? <laughs> but of course, over 10, 11 years, it's not the, a lot of companies don't just want a one-off speech. They're like, how do we embed this? Or how do we make this sustainable? So yeah. now what's happened and evolved over the years is now we have you know, a year-long program or a six-month program or a nine-month program so that we can work with generally the senior leaders or depending on the size of the organization so that you're developing them around their psychology and their mindset of how to improve. Because generally, technically, they're very, very good at the job, but they don't always get the, I suppose, the, the mental skills or the psychological training to allow them to be that you know, next CEO or next CFO or CEO or whatever it is. How would you deliver that if there was people here in Australia wanted that? How would you deliver that? Yeah, we do a lot of it virtually, actually. I think the last two years have shown that we can do a lot of stuff. So, for instance, we have a program where we can deliver the the first kind of two stages of it. And that'd be a lot of keynote speeches, there'd be a lot of corporate training in there, but that can all be done virtually. Then we have e-learning modules so people can go and do it in their own time. And then you have a lot of stuff where you're bringing them together and, and there's a whole lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning. But again, it's all it's all virtual if we need to. But of course, if I'm, ironically, I should have been in Australia last year doing my first tour around Australia, going and speaking to different organizations and because of COVID, it didn't happen. But you know, I'm hoping I'm going to be there next year. So it, it just, it's just, the, it's the ability to work with people in a flexible manner, depending on what the sort of the needs of the client are. Where would you class yourself in terms of professionals leaving the game? Do many go down a similar path that you have done, like in terms of studying and going through another career? Or are you a minority? It'd be great to get kind of a status quo. How often is your story in the professional world? Well, no one's ever done what I've done because I looked at whenever I came out of playing football, I was thinking that I potentially might want to go down this corporate training route because I said Gavin Drake had a corporate training business. So I started delivering sessions and, and I was, you know, really loving the three, four day programs. And then I came across this world of keynote speaking and suddenly this, you know, corporate training program that I was getting paid, you know, a few hundred bucks a day to suddenly then go and learn how to become a keynote speaker and get paid, you know, 10, 15 times more to do an hour speaking as a keynote speaker seemed very appealing at the time <laughs> so i thought let's buy this so then i went off and then suddenly i started delivering these keynotes for a fraction of the time for significant more amount of money and i was going okay this is this is pretty good but as i started getting into this world of keynote speaking i started looking around going who else does this and all i could find was rugby players loads of rugby players were doing it they're probably the most people who were doing it then you had olympians and then you had yeah. people who were like, um, you know, adventurers. Clinton. Yeah, no, we had some politicians, but then you also had military people, you know, generals yeah. or whatever. And then the last one, which surprised me, but sort of there's not a big jump to it, was academics. 
people who just studied something to a high level to go in and then mm. share it. So someone like Sir Ken Robinson, TED Talk, and it's got 20 million views, whatever, on education. So these different people and demographics, and I'm going, but hold on. Football is the number one sport in the UK and Ireland. It's the number one sport in the world. And how many speakers from the world of football are there? None. So if I started doing it, I knew I'd create a USP for myself. And amazingly, 10 years later, there's still no one else doing it. So it then allowed me to go, okay, I've now been doing this for 10 years. I've got a niche for myself, but now I can start training people. So I now train people how to do keynote speaking so that they can come on our program. Ironically, we had three professional footballers come on the first 12-month program with us because for me, it is the biggest sport in the world. It's obviously the best sport in the world. And to be able to share what you have learned in that highly competitive industry seems to go down very, very well in the corporate world. It seems so simple, right? You think like if you're a professional athlete, there's a system. And I know you were mentioned different kind of categories there, but even like yourself, a professional soccer player, and to be an Olympian, there's probably a lot of similarities in terms of how you structured your life men- mentally, but also physically routine that we've spoken about was so important to mental health. And the fact that no one could realize that seems, seems crazy. Yeah. yeah, but again, it's like anything, if you're not aware, you know the phrase like you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, yeah, that, that unconscious incompetence if i didn't know that i didn't know how to do keynote speaking well my world yeah. is never going to change because I'm, I'm ignorant of that fact but if suddenly my friend introduced me to his friend who's a keynote speaker and he was getting paid ten thousand dollars an hour an american guy and i'm suddenly at the next stage of you know it's essentially it's learning skill the four stages of learning skill unconscious incompetence it's like you don't know you don't know but then i got to the conscious incompetence where i now knew that I didn't know how to be a keynote speaker. And then I paid $20,000 to go on this guy's course. So not only was he getting paid $10,000 an hour, he also get paid $20,000 by me to teach me because I'm like, <clears throat> I like we better that place. And so he started teaching me and went on his year-long program in America. And when I came back, suddenly I now knew that I knew how to be a keynote speaker. So that's consciously competent, which is the third stage of learning a skill. Until now, I delivered a keynote for last year for Microsoft and Let's just say it's how much just was that for? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how much is in your bank account. Is that what you're asking? <laughs> but what I would say is that now it's like walking out on the football pitch. It's not that I don't have to prepare because you train every single day. It's that you don't think about when you walk out on the football pitch. You just go out and you just do it. So now whenever I go up on stage, I suppose I didn't realize that I had this kind of performing gene that even though I was playing in front of the 25, 30, 40,000 people every week, I had clearly had a performing gene because I loved it. And I didn't realize that that performing gene goes through right your life, not just when you're on a football pitch. So now whenever I step on stage, it's literally the biggest buzz I get. And after nearly two years of sitting in the house and being in lockdown, I've just been out the last couple of weeks and I've gone and delivered a keynote for PwC and Vitality, the big health insurance, face-to-face, in-person, and I can't tell you guys just what a feeling that was. So with, with each guest, we just asked them some quick fire questions. There's four in total. And the idea is to try and answer them in 30 seconds, but we're not too strict on the clock. <laughs> yeah. So when are you at your happiest? When I am with family and friends. Nice. Out of 10, where do you think the world currently is in terms of mental health awareness? Awareness, I'd say a good seven. Great. And out of 10, where are you with your own mental health right now? I'm very, very fortunate that 
I don't have any dysfunction in terms of the capacity of my brain. And I'm very aware of this subject. And because I work in this world, I would say it's a nine and a half to 10 in terms of, I'm not saying I'm some sort of automaton, like a little happy robot running around every single day. I have my bad days, but I know very quickly that I need to do something or whether go for a run or put on some music or go and see or do something to very quickly get to myself into the space that I need to be to go and help me create the life that I want to have. Well, that segues lovely into the last question, which is if you could recommend one thing for people to do each day to improve their mental health, what would that be? Gratitude. Start a gratitude journal. You have the ability, no matter who you are in life, no matter what you have in your life, no matter what's going on, that every single day you can be grateful for something. And even if that's just the fact that you've, you were breathing that day, the fact that you're alive. And I, I honestly, probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read was uh, Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Freedom. Man's Search Meaning. Yeah. Man's Search Meaning. And honestly, that book gave me just the perspective and the kind of the, the eye-opening account of obviously in the Holocaust and in the second world war and how he was Victor Frankl was a I think he was a psychiatrist or psychologist and he was in Auschwitz and when he saw that even in the most horrendous and I can only imagine just how horrific that was in the most horrendous circumstances that even within that sort of in confined area people had the ability to either be nice or not so if people had the tiniest bit of food and they could either pass it on to someone else, to their loved ones or their family or not. And even in those terrible circumstances, people still had the ability to be grateful for things in their life. So I think if that can happen in, in Auschwitz, then in my life, I know I definitely can be grateful for things that I have going on, no matter how bad things can appear in your life. Amazing. So where can people find, obviously, people here in Australia might not know of you, what you do, or how to find more about you. And hopefully, mate, when you're coming to Australia, there'll be plenty of people who want to get involved with what you do. And even, like you said, there's a virtual option. So we'll pass people on to those options. If you can let's let us know where to find you, socials, etc. Yeah, definitely. So um, the best thing just to do is go to my website, which is just paulmcveigh.co.uk. And, and you can get my book on there. So I wrote a book called The Stupid Footballer is Dead. And so that, that was published with Bloomsbury. Ironically, I was in the Bloomsbury office in Sydney when I went out there in, in 2013 because I was promoting it out there and I went on a few radio shows and all around Sydney and stuff. So, and, and anyway, but you can go on the website and get, get the book down or the book for free or on my socials, really, that's just Paul McVeigh 77, whether that's Instagram or Twitter. I suppose my biggest, probably my biggest influence and platform is LinkedIn. So when I go on there, I have sort of, the, the maximum connections you can have on there but it's only because i think people seem to really crave this kind of content in the subject matter so like you guys are doing a podcast i did a podcast as well called the psychology of success again because the stuff that i'm talking about it's not really about me you know my life is fine you know i've been working on this for 25 years so there's a reason why i have the life that i have because i'm consciously aware of what i need to do on a regular basis whether that's goal setting whether it's gratitude whether it's a success log whether it's you know taking account and just understand what i want and don't want in my life i'm doing that consistently so there's no probably coincidence why i kind of had the career that i had come out 
quite seamlessly and then have been working in this area and probably the first to do it because it's it's been a goal of mine and I've been working on it every day, same as you do in football. You just keep working on something every day and that cumulative effect can be incredibly powerful. But I was only just going to say, so it, it, I think that it, it's really, really helpful to understand that we have so much more control than probably what we believe we may have. Awesome. I only have one more question for the Northern Irish Tony Robbins. And that was, are you, are you still playing football in any shape or form, night owls or anything? You just off the boots? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so we still play for uh, Spurs Legends. So when I stopped playing in, in 2010, I was approached by the Spurs. Well, they are Spurs Legends. I don't think necessarily my three games and one goal for Spurs makes me necessarily a Spurs legend, but I was young and I was fit and I used to do all the running for them. But you know, we had the players who'd won like UEFA Cup and FA Cups and all that kind of thing in the team. So yeah, so 10 years later, we're still playing for them and and it's uh, it's good crack, really, really good fun playing with those boys and just seeing these guys who have been proper players back in the day and, and still now can still play and still play against 20 rules and still outsmart them and out with them and, and all the rest of it. So like, yeah, love it. Rory up top with his cricket bat. <laughs> you know what? I asked Rory, I asked Rory sort of finish off the story about Rory Allen in 2012. I was just, I was in London and I came back. I was like, where the hell is Rory Allen? Is he alive? Is he dead? <laughs> so I'm sitting in my house on Twitter going, don't know if any of you remember this, but I played with a guy called Rory Allen. He made his first team debut for Spurs. He played for Portsmouth, then decided he stopped playing. Does anyone know where Rory is? Anyway, this is the power of social media and Twitter. Within 60 minutes, I had Rory's phone number. I knew that he was living back uh, just outside London. I knew who he was working for. I knew that he was married. I knew what he was doing. I ended up got having a conversation with him, and then we all met up and had like a reunion for Spurs in London about you six just weeks later. Him, mate. You just absolutely Facebook stalked him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. It was just people, all the people who lads were still in touch with him. It's just that oh, I wasn't. You doing it. So easy. It's scary. Like, amazing. Scary. Amazing. So, and, and what a fella. What a fella is. But you know what? The reason why I say that is because Rory did something that probably most people wouldn't do. He didn't stick at something just because he believed or thought that he had to. Because yeah. how many go to a shit job or stay in a shit relationship or stay in a shit mm. scenario just because they think they don't have any other choice. And mm. I'll tell you now why they call me the Irish Tony Robbins now, which is a terrible <laughs> nickname, by the way. <laughs> I would say that no matter what you're doing, you always have a choice. Because no one is forcing you to go into that shit job. And if you don't like your job, do something about it. And if you don't like a relationship, do something about it. Because we all have different choices in life. And ultimately, every single choice we make will decide what our, life's, what our life looks like. Mm. And until you're taking responsibility for every single choice, then you can start blaming everyone else. And that's not really a helpful way to go. Even with the beauty of, it, of a hindsight, what that decision that he made was probably the bravest decision he could have made and the right decision for his own life and his situation. And I'm a big fan of Alan Watts, who's a philosopher, and he talks about that. Well, he's now gone, but he talks about the same thing. If you want to be a painter and that's what you want to do, go be a painter. You know, don't try and do something that you're not because it won't, you know, you won't be happy. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it just comes back down to finding your passion. It's really is, you know, as very, like, lads, I can't tell you how blessed I've been in my life. You know, at 16, some fellow went, here, you know, you've been playing football with your mates in the street in Belfast. Do you want to come over to England? We'll pay you some money. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. And then, and then 
I got the professional and, and Jerry Francis went, here, do you want to come and play in the Premier League? And then we'll give you a bit more money. I was like, yeah, okay. And then I got the Norwich and got myself back in the, you know, building up into the team and coming regular and getting promotion in the Premier League and playing the Premier League. He goes, do you want another bonus for playing that? And you just going, yeah, it's ridiculous. Why would people pay you just for kicking a ball around? But they do because it's market forces. And now, since I've been out of football, people now pay me to come in to speak to their staff or their employees about kicking a ball around. So as my ma says, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> like, well, Gina, uh, like, and also we know, I mean, I understand how precious your time is, mate. And like I said, I could have probably spoke to you for a bit longer, seeing that you've been from a football background, so we could have spoke for a lot longer. So I really, really appreciate your time, mate. There's, in your uh, introduction, there's a ton you've done that we haven't even mentioned from your media stuff, from your book that like you've just touched on. You've done a ton. Um, so it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. And there's loads of little golden nuggets that we'll, that we'll be putting on our socials and putting out to our listeners. So thanks very much for your time, mate. We really, really appreciate it. Good man. Well, as I say, here for a good time and a long time. So it's so only just getting started. Right, good man. Love it. Right, good on you. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. See you, mate. Cheers, guys. Take this soon, all right? Thanks, <laughs> mate. Appreciate Cheers, it. Lads. All the Bye. best. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter, at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzier, and the Black Dog Institute.